0: Well, good morning. My name is uh, Robin Davis, and I'd like you to welcome you to uh, this morning's service here at Bankery Christian Fellowship, whether you're sitting here in the church or whether you're listening on, on the internet. A special welcome to those who are visiting for the first time or visiting with us on a re- repeat basis, uh, and please join us for tea and coffee and fellowship after the service. Duncan will be preaching today, starting a new series in Exodus. And today he'll be taking us through Exodus chapter 1, where we will see how God keeps his promises by making his people into a great nation. We will also see that where God is fulfilling his purposes, the evil one intensifies his opposition, albeit to no avail.
1: Reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live." But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, "Why have you done this and let the male children live?" The midwife said to Pharaoh, "Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them." So God dealt with well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen.
0: Well, please do take a seat. And uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Duncan, and I have the privilege of serving as pastor here, and we're delighted. You've come to be with us today. Please do turn back with me to Exodus chapter one. It, it, those verses are printed in the the diary that was handed out on the way in. Whilst you're turning there, let me just mention a couple of other things. Next Sunday, the the 19th of March, uh, there's a notice in there saying that we will be giving a, a, a presentation of some kind of feedback from the strategy session that we held as a congregation back in November, and. Um, There'll be an opportunity to stay afterwards as long as you bring your own lunch um, to to just talk about some of the things that we present. I realize it's Mothering Sunday next Sunday, and if that's that makes it difficult for you to stay, we entirely understand. There'll be lots of other opportunities to feedback. And to mention we have a praise night next Sunday at six o'clock, which will be a Sam's night. So please do to set that time aside to come and worship the Lord together. But this morning. Uh, sees us turn to the Old Testament to begin a series in the book of Exodus. It is a big change from the book of Acts uh, because here in the book of Exodus we have a description of how God dealt with his ancient people, give or take, three and a half thousand years ago. And you might wonder, well, how relevant could that be? And I guess it's okay to start there, isn't it? To say, why, why are we reading this book? It's almost certainly the case for every nation on earth that they have their moments in history that define who they are. Um, And the older the nation, the more of those moments they have, I'm sure. For the United Kingdom, a lot of the things we go back to are often things related to the Second World War. D-Day landings, Battle of Britain, these are often things we go back to 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 define ourselves or to say that, well, there is the spirit of what it means to be British. I suppose if you're American, you go back to the Fourth the of July 1776, Declaration of Independence. Uh, often they're drawn back to these things because that's we think there's something of what defines us there. And for the Israelites, for God's people, it's this, it's the book of Exodus that is one of those things the story of Exodus. Exodus just means departure or or flight from something, and specifically it's the story of how God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and we see how they fell into slavery in this chapter, how he rescued them, how he gave them his law so that they would be shaped into his nation, and it tells us how God dwelt with his people. And so for the Israelites and for Jews today. This is a hugely significant book of the Bible. It shapes so much of how the rest of the Bible speaks about God, about how the rest of the Bible speaks about how you can be right with God, about how you approach God in worship. Well, the same God whom we approach in worship today whom we seek to hear from today, is the same God who moved in power in Egypt all those generations ago. This book of Exodus is precious because it blazons across its pages who God is. And we need this. It is my conviction that we live in a Christian culture that is suffering from a pandemic of small thoughts about God. The book of Exodus will enlarge your view of God. And if we respond rightly, it will humble our hearts to worship God. This book tells us of how God's people went from being used as slave labor in Egypt to build cities for a pharaoh, to become willing servants of God, building a place for him to dwell, and that far from it simply being them exchanging one kind of slavery for another, it reveals that actually this is the way of true freedom, to submit to God. The book of Exodus shows us what it means for God to deliver his people, what it means for God to raise up a deliverer like Moses, what it means for him to redeem them by the blood of the Lamb, what it means to lead them into a life of grateful response to God. The book of Exodus has all of these themes which lie at the very heart of the gospel that is so dear to us. And this book of Exodus keeps bringing us back to the promises of God, and that's where I think we start in chapter 1. Some of the themes in what Leah read for us are as dark as can be. These are some of the most painful parts of Israel's history. And yet we're shown here that arcing over those dark clouds are God's big promises. Our English translations don't really show this. If you were being ultra rigid in translating, the first word of the book of Exodus would be the word and. And these are the names. And that tells us something. Something. It tells us that if if we're going to understand the contents of this book, we need to understand that it follows on from what's gone before. The first word is literally, and. And so the first six or seven verses here, they're telling us that the book of Genesis is essential to, to, to understanding what's going on in Exodus. These first six or seven verses, they really center us on where we've come from. It's an introduction that says, you have to know the past if you're going to understand the present. You have to know the past if you're going to understand the present. And so the book of Genesis, it opens with the creation of all things and the pinnacle of creation being human beings made in the image of God. And it tells us of how the human race fell away from God, sought to be our own gods instead of submitting to the Creator. And were rightly then banished from God's presence, but not without hope, because God gave them a promise that he would raise up a descendant of Adam and Eve who would destroy the serpent who had tempted them into sin. Genesis tells of humanity spiraling into greater and greater rebellion against God, so much so that he has to judge the world with a flood and start again with Noah, and then the rebellion starts all over again. And then God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with them. These words are from Genesis 12. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise in Genesis 12 is repeated again, certainly Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Abraham hears it again and again, and then after Abraham, God repeats that promise again to Isaac, repeats it again to Jacob. And Jacob, later renamed Israel, has 12 sons who find themselves in a famine in Canaan, and so they have to leave the promised land to go to Egypt to find food. And already there in Egypt is Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, who though his brothers had sold him into slavery, God raised him to high office in Egypt. And so Joseph brings his whole family to come to Egypt to find shelter from the famine. And that's what's summed up for us in verses one to six. Jacob and his 12 sons and their family all moved to Egypt, 70 descendants And that generation passes from the scene, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 7 is saying, but God did what God promised he would do. That's what it's saying. God did what He promised He would do. When He said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, well, here He is doing that. Look at how those terms all pile up in verse 7. They were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, grew exceedingly strong. You see how it's, it's like overloading the sentence with these synonyms for, for multiplication. And the implication is that from that small number, there was a population explosion. When they came to Egypt, they had left the promised land behind. And God's promises seemed far, far off. They were by no means a nation. But in Egypt, they grew into a nation. You see, knowing God's promise from the past helps us to understand what's going on in the present here in Exodus God is at work here. But wherever God is working, fulfilling His purposes, then there is opposition. When the serpent slithered into the Garden of Eden, it was with the aim of derailing God's purposes. And here another snake slithers onto the scene in the form of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And we see in this man that opposition to God is relentless and it is desperate. Opposition to God is relentless, and it's desperate. Because we see an escalation of opposition to the Israelites that seems to know no bounds. It all starts with a pretty common thing, the fear of foreigners. You see that in verse 9. Well, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. This Pharaoh who has no knowledge of this ancient figure, Joseph, who once Joseph the Israelite, who had who had rescued Egypt from famine, all he can see is that this growing number of foreigners in his land is a threat. Too many, too mighty. What if they multiply? What if they side with our enemies? That would be a disaster. And so, first of all, he tries to break their spirits. And he does that in a clever way. Pharaoh's no fool he doesn't just try to tread them down. He wants to get something out of it. So what does he do? Verse 11, he sets taskmasters over them. Suddenly the Israelites are not free to make a living for themselves. They are conscripted to labor for Pharaoh building his cities. But that doesn't calm the Egyptians' fears. And so the conscripted labor goes a stage further. Verse 13, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And again, look at how this language piles up. Made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It is work, 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 work. But it's a significant turn here because enslaving someone is more than just squeezing work out of them. It is a claim of ownership on them. If I make you my slave, I say that you belong to me. This is a brazen act of rebellion against God. To try and enslave the descendants of Abraham is to try and steal from God. Because God had made a solemn vow, a covenant with the descendants of Abraham, that he will be their God, and that from this people, a Messiah, a rescuer who will be a blessing to the whole earth, will come. And Pharaoh here, probably not realizing all the implications, says, no, you don't. And this is the question that hangs in the air in the first part of the book of Exodus. Whose people are they? Are they God's people? Or are they Pharaoh's people? Whose right of ownership is legitimate? But we see that not even this is enough for Pharaoh. Because when things don't work out as he planned, he moves from breaking their spirit to breaking their bones, and in particular, killing their children. It seems at first that he tries to do this subtly. He calls two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, and he orders them, when you're assisting the Hebrew women with the delivery, if you see that the child is a son, then kill him. What a ghastly ghastly plan. But you see opposition to God is relentless and desperate. It will stop at nothing, and Pharaoh's not done yet, because the next move is to tell the whole Egyptian population. If you see a Hebrew with a newborn son, you have my permission to take the baby and throw him in the River Nile, and all in the name of what? Controlling the population, all in the name of keeping us secure. But in this case, underneath all of that is plain old rebellion against God because the wicked plans that Pharaoh puts into place, they surely come from the devil himself. They have his fingerprints all over it because we see this behavior throughout Scripture. Many years later, a man named Haman, who had an important role in the Persian Empire, deviously set in place a plan to have all the Jews in the empire killed. You could read of it in the book of Esther. When Jesus was born… Jealous King Herod ordered that all the boys in the region of Bethlehem be murdered. When Jesus started his public ministry, the devil shows up seeking to tempt him away from the mission, seeking to derail God's plan. It's what he does. And in fact, it was a devilish plan to murder Jesus by crucifixion, surely in the conviction that that would be the end of it. And still today, this kind of thing goes on. The Church of Jesus Christ finds itself brutally treated in some countries, none more so today than in North Korea, Afghanistan. The way to stamp out the presence of Jesus in these countries is, so they think, to persecute, to beat them up, to imprison them, to kill them, to outlaw them, and do the same to their families. And even in the West, here in Scotland, in a very different way, our religiously secular society has often managed to so squeeze the church that in so many quarters of Christianity you could hardly tell where secular society ends and the church begins. The result has been, looking on, seemingly to derail the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This happens and has always happened since time began. Wherever God forms a people for his name's sake, there you can be sure the devil will attack. And so there are plenty of dark clouds that seem to engulf God's people. Opposition to God is relentless and desperate. And we see those dark clouds in Egypt and we see them all around us today. But Exodus 1 is not a passage that is just about dark clouds. That reminder that we had in those opening six verses that we are continuing on something that God started way back in Genesis is important because it's in the midst of these dark clouds that still shining are God's big promises. Look again at the chapter and see that God's plans can never be thwarted. God's plans can never be thwarted. Because look at what keeps happening. In response to the multiplication in verse 7, Pharaoh tries to break their spirit. And then verse 12, what does it say? But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh invokes the midwives to help bring the Israelite population under control. Verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Doesn't seem to make sense, does it? The more Pharaoh throws at them, the more they seem to grow and multiply. And in fact, the general instruction to drown like boys will not stand in the way of God delivering baby Moses to safety, even in Pharaoh's own palace. You see, God's plans can never be thwarted. This is who God is. Prophet Jeremiah would reflect to God. He said, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And in response to those words, God says this to Jeremiah. He said, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And certainly on a reading of Exodus 1, God's promises are being fulfilled. This is who God is, it's what He determines to do. He will do, and uh, He will do whatever He has promised, and we can be sure of that because, well, who could ever stand against Him? The only options are creatures that He has created. How could they? thwart his plans. He is the Lord Almighty. And the record of Scripture is the history of how God has dealt with humanity in the world. And it is a long, unblemished legacy of God keeping his promises. And we see it here in the midst of the dark clouds of Exodus 1 Even though all the visible power in Egypt wants to crush God's people, God is multiplying them into the nation he promised they would be. This isn't an isolated incident either. I saw an article last year that said, in the world today, the country that is home to the fastest growing church is where do you think? Iran. Iran, the fastest growing church in the world. Iran? This strict Islamic regime that has such contempt even towards house churches because they must be a way of the West infiltrating, a nation where Muslims who convert to Christianity face losing everything their place in society, their family, their freedom, and especially for women who have few rights there as it is, the situation is perilous for people who want to identify with Jesus Christ in this way, but it is in Iran, in the face of all of that opposition, that the church is growing faster than anywhere else in the world. How do you make sense of that? You see, we are not told how God made the Israelites so fruitful, but we are told how the plan to have the midwives do Pharaoh's dirty work fell apart. These these two Hebrew women are are given a command from Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh is not only one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, but in his own nation, he's regarded as a god. And he calls in these two Hebrew midwives. And these Hebrews are all enslaved to the Egyptians, remember. And he gives them an order. Yet these brave women are given the boldness to resist him. And it's put very simply for us in verse 17. Here's the motivation. It says, but the midwives feared God. It doesn't say the midwives feared Pharaoh. The midwives feared God. God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I do think we're supposed to read this as, and of course they didn't kill the babies, because they're midwives. They're there to protect mothers and babies. I saw this week that um, Hamza Yusuf who's campaigning to become our next first minister, uh, appeared to indicate that he would be in favor of removing abortion from the criminal law, uh, which would remove any limitations on abortion, which would include removing the time limit, and would mean, for example, a sex-selective abortion at any point right up to birth would be legalized. Now, it's quite unlikely that that's going to happen, I think. But to even in principle nod that that could be okay really did make me think of Exodus chapter 1, because what he assented to this week was proposing asking health professionals to do what these midwives were asked to do. Midwives in Egypt feared God, and so they believed that these little ones were not dispensable but we're to be protected at all costs. You see, to fear God is to care about life, both inside and outside the womb, I would add. Now, of course, there are often people in desperate situations who feel they've got nowhere to turn, and we're not doing a very good job of caring for those people. But that is also no excuse for failing to speak up for the most vulnerable people in the world, those who have no voice, who have no power, the unborn. And if mentioning this affects you today in whatever way, I want you to know that we always carry with us a message of grace from God, a message of forgiveness for all who come to Jesus even for you today. You see, here in these verses, God's evaluation of people works on a different scale to ours. And I love this detail in this chapter. You notice in verse 15 that these two midwives are named. They're named Shifra and Pua. And yet mighty Pharaoh, the demigod... His name isn't mentioned once in this whole book. And in fact, so much so, nobody's actually sure which Pharaoh this is. It makes dating the book of Exodus hard because Pharaoh's not named. These names have been recorded here for all eternity. You know the word of the, God, the word of the word of the Lord will endure forever, and the names of these two midwives will endure with it. God is fulfilling His promises here, in the midst of dark clouds, and He's doing it through some pretty ordinary-looking folk. That's what I want us to see here in that detail. He, God, God notices what they do, and we can be confident that he's happy with what they have done because, well, it says, does not it, that he, he, he gave them families that because of what they had done, there was a sense that he had, he had wanted to bless them for their stand that they had taken. And what God is doing here is he's fulfilling his purposes, not through the strong, not through the mighty, not through those who have who have privilege or who have power not through those who are revered but through two hebrew midwives it's hugely surprising isn't it the god of such power the god of the god who has no rivals would use such seemingly weak people to fulfill his purposes God says elsewhere to his people, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What he's saying there is God doesn't do things how we would do them. And the testimony right throughout Scripture is that God seems to delight in using the weak and the seemingly insignificant to accomplish purposes. When the enemies of Christ thought they had got rid of him, you know, by nailing him to a cross, that's, that's a pretty definite end. It turned out that the very weapon that they had used against him was God's plan to rescue his people from darkness and from slavery. You see, these dark clouds They exist somewhere in the middle of the story. God had promised his people that he would get them to the promised land as a nation. That they would be a nation who would know him. And that they would be a nation who would be a blessing to the world. And here in Exodus 1, they're not there yet. The dark clouds are in the middle of the story somewhere, but they will get there. And in fact, as we look back on it, it's been fulfilled. The book of Exodus will walk us through much of it. But the blessing that they were promised to be to the whole world has come. Because Jesus, descended from Abraham, is God's promised Savior. And he makes promises to his people. He promises to all who come to Him in faith, turning from sin, trusting in Him, that His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead are enough for anyone who trusts in Him to be right with God. That that's enough. That's His promise. His promise is that all who come trusting in Him will find release from slavery to sin and to death and to the devil. He promises that all who come to Him in faith will be brought into a new covenant, a new promise that God makes, one where God by His Spirit will dwell within you. He promises to all who trust in Jesus that they will find peace with God, that they will receive peace the promise of transformation more and more into the likeness of Jesus until the day comes when Jesus returns and you are made like Him in every way and you enter into an eternity with Him in a world where everything that is wrong with this world is undone and put right. The promise Jesus gives is that that message, that way in which He will be he will bring people to himself is through this very weak vessel called the church. And as the members of the church of Jesus Christ proclaim his word. Now, those promises hang in the air right here today to you. What an offer that is that God gives. All who will come to Jesus in faith can be right with him and not because of anything you've done, but simply because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. That is the promise that comes to you. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? And it's especially a lot to take in when you see the clouds, the clouds that might be surrounding you right now. When we see the clouds, the dark clouds that surround our world. Jonathan in his prayer mentioned some of them, didn't he? When so much of our world is at war. When so much of our world suffers through nothing other than pure wickedness of men. When we see dark clouds that seem to gather for the church. We see churches divided. We see churches abandoning the gospel. We see people leaving our church when we see dark clouds for ourselves, when we lose a loved one, when we fall into sickness, when our mental health is not as robust as we thought it was, when we fall into financial difficulties, when we fall into sin, And the clouds never seem darker. And in those times, so often the promises of God never seem so far away. The book of Exodus is telling us those dark clouds are only ever in the middle of the story, not the end. They are not the end of the story. Because in those dark clouds, these big promises from God are yours. And there is nothing that can stand in the way of God fulfilling what he has promised to you. And this is one of the most wonderful things we can do with the word of God, is to search out the promises of God that come to us as we believe in Jesus Christ, and to hold God to every one of them, to bring them before God And if you like, remind him of them. Not that he needs reminded of them, but we need reminded of them. And it gives us hope. The dark clouds that we sense just now will not always be there. The promises of God will. And he'll use your church family. He'll use the Word of God. He'll use the Spirit within you to bring these things to pass in you. That's why he's given us these gifts. And so I wonder today, who can you point to the big promises God has given? Who is it that's maybe getting lost in those dark clouds and needs to be reminded that arcing over them all are God's big promises to us in Christ? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you.